You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Our rhythm here at TCC is to walk through uh, chunks of Scripture, books of the Bible, and uh, back before Christmas, we began a journey through Genesis 1 through 11, these foundational chapters to the Bible. They literally obviously introduce the Bible, but they also introduce really all of life. Uh, they introduce us to God as creator, his very good creation, the world that we live in that obviously isn't the way it's supposed to be because we find out in Genesis 3 uh, that it's a fallen world. But we also see God's design for man and woman and Adam and Eve and Uh, We see their rebellion against God and God's judgment upon uh, creation as well as upon us and and our need and our hope that we find that God is going to send a redeemer. God is going to send a savior. And uh, that promise of a savior to come, we we pushed pause right before Christmas. And uh, I like to say sometimes God's word makes you look smarter than you are. I hadn't planned for us to hit Genesis 3.15 and the promise of an offspring to be born from the seed of a woman that led us into Christmas, Uh, but it just so happened uh, to lead us into Christmas as we celebrated Christ's birth. And and today we pick up in Genesis 4, but uh, the bad news is Genesis 4 isn't the prettiest picture. Um, But uh, as Chris said uh, at the beginning, as he welcomed us, uh, you know, the reality is we probably have all walked through a little bit of something in the last week, the last month, the last year, uh, the last two years. Um, the last two years have been quite the last two years in human history, right? Uh, we've all walked through a little bit of something. And uh, we live in a fallen world. And, and I think one thing uh, that many people would agree upon in the world that we live in today is things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Um, we may have uh, in our community differing perspectives as to why that's the case, uh, but we can all agree that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And God's word actually lets us in to why that's the case. And it's a simple three-letter word that has profound implications, and that's sin. We live in a fallen world, a sinful world, and Genesis 4 paints a picture of life in a fallen world. It shows us what to expect as we walk through this life. Um, And it's as true as it was in the day of Cain and Abel uh, as it is today. Um, And so uh, as you come uh, to Genesis 4, as we we heard it read, uh, Genesis 4 picks up uh, right where uh, Genesis 3 left off with Adam and Eve being sent out of the garden, away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, And as they go out from the garden and away from God's presence, uh, it picks up in some in some ways like a very ordinary um, uh, kind of scene that unfolds. So we we already know that God created Adam and Eve, the the first couple, the first human beings to uh, as as man and wife, as husband and wife, to to have children, to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue the earth. And though they have sinned and sin has marred God's design, it hasn't erased the the reality that we're made in God's image and the call that we have to uh, to to be about the work that God has entrusted to us. And so Genesis four picks up with children being born work being done, and sacrifices being made. We, we see here the, the sacrifices that are made uh, per, most likely are, uh, were told to Cain and Abel by their parents because when God sent them out of the garden, God gave them 
uh, loincloths and, and animal skins to clothe themselves because they now were aware of their nakedness and needed to be clothed. And most likely the first sacrifice took place in order for that to happen in Genesis 3. And Cain and Abel carry on perhaps just what their parents had told them to do. But here's the thing in this ordinary scene of children being born, work being done, sacrifices being made, sin has entered in. And sin has entered in because in a moment we're going to see a brother kill his brother. We're going to see work become a source of comparison. And we're going to see sacrifice corrupted by impure motives. It all uh, has been affected by sin. And the occasion for sin in Genesis 4, as I said, are the sacrifices that Cain and Abel make. I want us to see four things uh, in this passage. Uh, And in many ways, as we walk through this passage... It's going to lead us, as we start with the sacrifice of Cain and Abel, we're going to end with people calling upon the name of the Lord, and we're going to set our eyes on the better sacrifice that we find in Christ. And, uh, and today, at the end of our service, we'll take the Lord's Supper together, reminding ourselves, remembering what Christ's sacrifice means for us as followers of Christ, that it nourishes us, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, uh, that our salvation is grounded not in our performance, but in his perfect work on our behalf. But the first thing I want us to see is the sacrifice that pleases God. We already set the scene, uh, but in verse 4, in verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, this is verse 4, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And it says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. See, verses 4 through 5 tell us that as Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God, that God has regard for Abel's, but does not have regard. In other words, does not look upon with favor, does not accept the offering of Cain, but does accept the offering of Abel. That's kind of a, there's no uh, apparent, at least uh, uh, maybe jumping off at the page uh, on first glance at this as to why God would accept Abel's and not Cain's. Uh, if you've been a younger sibling, it perhaps gives you great pleasure uh, that the younger brother uh, gets his offering accepted while the older brother uh, does not. Uh, it seems as if God works that way throughout Scripture, but I don't think that's fully what's going on here. I also don't think that God is just like, uh, you know, likes meat but doesn't like veggies, right? Like some of us, that may be true, but I don't think that's the case with God. Right? Cain brought a produce offering. Uh, Abel brings an offering from the flock. Uh, But we know later on in Leviticus that God accepts grain offerings and produce offerings as well as the animal offerings. In particular, in Leviticus, we learn that God takes regard for the first fruits of the field and for the firstborn of the flock. And I actually think that's what's going on here. We we know from Hebrews, if you uh, wanted to jot down Hebrews 11.4, that it's by faith that Abel offers his sacrifice to God and Cain did not. And by faith, Abel was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. Even though he is dead, his faith still speaks, Hebrews 11.4 says. But I think there's also something in the text that, that we can look at. Notice how it says that Cain brought some of the produce from the land as an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. 
Now, if some of you like steak, you know that the fat portions are important, right? Some of us are like the fat portions. What is that, right? Like we don't want the fat portions, but, but that was actually the, the, the best part uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the animal. And it, it was brought before the Lord, not only the firstborn, an act of faith to give the firstborn of the flock, but also those fat portions that were burnt before the Lord as an offering of gratitude to him. You see, I think God accepts Abel's offering because he offers the best of his flock, whereas Cain offers the Lord the rest of his crop. Abel offers the best of his flock. Cain offers the Lord the rest of of his crop. And what we see in the terms of the sacrifice that pleases God here in Genesis 4 is that God is more concerned with the heart of the offerer than he is the content of the offering. I had to look up and make sure that offerer was a word, but it is indeed a word, just in case you question. I am from Arkansas, but um, I think I got that right. Uh, he's more concerned with our hearts than the sacrifice that we bring. And, and all throughout the scriptures, both in, uh, in, in the law as we see uh, the, the sacrifices, the, the instruction for the sacrifices unfold in Leviticus, as well as throughout the prophets and into the Psalms, what is it that the Lord desires? Not the ritual routine of our sacrifices, but a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that knows that we don't deserve God's grace, but that we come because of his mercy into his presence and we offer a sacrifice in humility and in and gratitude for the grace that he's demonstrated to us. You see, Cain and Abel show us the sacrifice that pleases God. And the sacrifice that pleases God, just like Hebrews 11 says, is, is grounded in, in believing God and in faith offering him what we have as an act of worship. It's a, it's a bringing to God uh, the best of what we have by faith rather than offering him whatever we have with indifference. Right, God, God wants our hearts in, in response to what he's done for us to, to offer to him the sacrifice of the lips, of, of uh, the praise of our lips, of the, uh, the, the lives that we live, of the, the money that we give, the, the, the way in which we serve, the way in which we uh, give of ourselves to others. He wants that to be marked by faith and gratitude, giving the best of what we have rather than approaching God as a sense of indifference with indifference or a sense of dry duty that says I'm just here to do what I need to do to get by, but a sense of, of faith, believing God and responding to him. That's the sacrifice that pleases God. And we see that that's what unfolds here in Genesis 4, 1 through 5. I think that the encouragement, the challenge for us as we look at Cain and Abel's sacrifice, what we take away from it is that in our giving, in our work, in our home, in our lives, God desires that we would live to please him above everything else, that we would live to please him. And if we do that, here's, here's, the, here's the bottom line of what I can encourage you. And when you live your life to please God, offering him the best by faith, you can, you can lay your head down at night in peace and you can wake up in the morning with a clear conscience because you're not living for anyone else. You're not living to prove something to someone else. You're not living to show somebody else up. You're not living for yourself. The reality is if you don't live to please God by faith, you're inviting sin into your life, just like Cain. 
Uh, we don't know what's going on in his heart. I'm, I'm not here to uh, break down what's happening in Cain's mind, but we know from Hebrews 11, from the way in which they've offered these sacrifices, that the heart of Cain's problem was that he didn't come by faith, that he didn't come offering God his best. Instead, there was some, whether it was comparison uh, to Cain, whether it was trying to prove something, whether it was indifference, he came with a heart that wasn't seeking to please God above everything else. Cain treated God with indifference and then became filled with envy and hatred towards Abel, which is what led to him ultimately murdering Abel in the field, whereas Abel simply sought to please God and to walk by faith. There's a lot of things I think that we can complicate life with, but the one thing we don't have to is that God just calls us to keep coming back to him and walking by faith. And it's freeing, right? to, To know that what God delights in is that when we are humble and we walk by faith and we trust him, we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to have it all figured out. But that's the sacrifice that pleases God. Second thing we see is the sin that desires to master you. Genesis lays the foundation for us to understand the world in which we live. It lays the foundation for us to understand life in this world. It, it tells us the, uh, the truth about the beauty and the goodness of God's creation, which still bursts forth in the, in the morning as you wake up and you see the sun rising, as you see the snow falling, if you're not having to shovel it or drive in it, as you, as you see the sun setting, as you hear a child laugh, as you spend good time with friends and you eat a meal, it reminds you of God's goodness, that we have a creator that's amazing magnificent, beyond anything that we could comprehend or imagine. And the longing of our hearts sometimes in those moments, we want those moments so bad because God created us for him. And the reason our hearts often aren't at rest is because we haven't found our rest in him or in the flow of our day, we're finding our rest in other things. And, And the Bible not only tells us that, but it tells us the truth about why things are the way they are. It tells us the truth of why we're in conflict with the people that we often love the most. It tells us why we're in truth. That uh, tells us the truth about why we're in conflict with people we barely know. Uh, it tells us the truth about why we get angry and 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 why we are jealous and why we're envious and why we lust and why we lie and and why we shift blame and why we don't care for others. It tells us the the truth of these things. Sometimes we don't want to hear it. Sometimes we uh, it seems like we can't believe it. But God gives us His word so that it will guide us in this life. And it tells us the truth. It makes sense of the reality with which we face. A part of, the, uh, part of my testimony as I uh, became a Christian as a teenager and continue to grow as a Christian, one of the reasons I'm committed to Christ is because I think the Bible makes sense of the world we live in. Every other system that I've looked at doesn't make sense as to why things are the way they are or gives us a hope that tells us that the things that are broken now are going to be fixed either in this life or in the life to come. And Genesis 4 tells us about the sin that not only has broken the world around us, but the sin that desires to master us. See, God comes to Cain after Cain is furious. It doesn't tell us how he knows that the Lord didn't accept his offering. Some commentators wonder if fire came down from heaven and consumed Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And clearly the Lord is communicating with Cain throughout this passage. And and Cain knows that his offering wasn't accepted and he's mad and he's despondent. 
I don't know if you ever get that way. You first get mad and then you kind of uh, begin to become introspective and you begin to self-loathe. You know, I can relate to Cain. I've been there uh, in those moments. And, and God comes to him in verse 6 and he says, Why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at the door. And here it is. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. See, God comes to Cain and questions him, not because God needs to be informed by Cain about what's taking place, but because God wants Cain to ultimately be drawn to repentance. He wants Cain to understand the sinfulness of his anger and turn away from it and do what's right. And he gives him this warning that sin is crouching at the door. It's waiting to pounce. It's looking for the opportunity. If you sin and continue in sin, sin is waiting to to pounce on you. And as it pounces on you, its desire is to master you. I was uh, reading a a story today about a, a lion keeper who sleeps with his lions. And I'm like... You got to be insane. Like, you know, like it may last for a while, but I've seen the the documentaries about the bear guy who goes out with the bear. And I've seen the stories about the person who has the boa constrictor and everything's nice and cool. And then it gets up in the bed and then all of a sudden you're you're wrapped up and you can't breathe. Like there are animals that you shouldn't become friends with. And sin as God describes it here, is an animal that you shouldn't let out of its cage and become friends with because its desire is to master you. That sin has a power over us. Its pull and desire uh, draws us in and keeps us. It's been said that sin will make you go further than you want to go and keep you there longer than you want to stay and make you pay more than you want to pay. Sin has a way and a power over us. And verse 8 demonstrates the power of this sin. Particularly when we fail to keep short accounts with sin, sin will ultimately desire to master us. Think about this. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were talked into sinning by the serpent. In Genesis 4, Cain, Cain couldn't be talked out of sinning, even by God himself. God comes to him and says, Cain, why are you furious? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? In other words, don't go on sinning in anger. Turn from your sin. Perhaps offer sacrifice in faith. Perhaps repent of your anger. Restore your relationship with your brother. Do what's right. And God says, won't you be accepted? But if not, sin's desire is to master you. And Cain does what many of us have done. We know what not to do, and yet we do it. What we want to do, we don't do, Paul says in Romans 7. Sin has a way of coming into our lives, and it's present in us. It's not as if it's some outside thing. It's present within us because of the fall, because of what took place in Genesis 3. Ever since, every child that's been born since, uh, except Jesus, has entered into this world with a sinful nature, We sin because we're sinners. Not only are we sinners because we sin. Cain, we have a description of life in the fallen world. Cain's sin demonstrates, if you will, what it looks like to disregard God and hate your neighbor. Think about it. Cain breaks the great commandment before it's ever given. He hates God, shows no regard for God. 
And he hates his closest neighbor, his own brother. Titus 3.3 sums it up well, one of my favorite verses. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's life in a fallen world. Filled with malice, filled with envy, slaves to various passions and pleasures, led led astray, foolish and disobedient, but hated by others and hating one another. Such a succinct way of saying it, but it tells us that our greatest problem in this life, it isn't somebody else, it isn't our circumstance, but our greatest problem in our lives is sin. It's a sobering truth. It's one in which we often don't want to hear. But in a fallen world, sin is a given. There there is no sinlessness on this side of eternity. And so I think perhaps the greatest question is how do we respond to our sin? That we will sin seems to be true throughout Scripture. And of course, as we grow in Christ, we put away sin and we uh, perhaps some of the sins that have mastered us in the past, we begin to experience victory and God's grace is present within them. And some of them we struggle and fight against. And yet we keep on pursuing Christ, uh, filling our, our desires for Christ rather than for our sin. So we starve our sin, turning our affections towards him, welcoming community into our life that help us fight sin. But the reality is sin is always there and it's essential that we understand how to respond to sin. God calls Cain to turn away from his sin, to repent and turn to God. But what unfolds is that Cain hardens his heart and Cain says to his brother, hey, let's go out to the field. A simple invitation, but filled with murderous intent. Let's go out into the field. And as they're there, it says that Cain rose up. The, the language is that this is what Cain intended when he went out. It, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't like uh, it just kind of happened. He rose up and he attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. And the, the way the language puts it here, as you read throughout it, his brother is mentioned like seven times in these four verses as to, to indicate the significance of what he's done. He kills his brother and then the Lord comes to him just just like God came to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, not where are you, but where is your brother Abel? And notice what sin does. Sin, in our sin, we deny our sin. God says, where's your brother? Um, Cain says, I don't know. He knows where he's at. We rationalize our sin. He goes, well, yeah, I do. But am I my brother's keeper? Do I have to watch out for him? Yeah, we do. We deny our sin, we rationalize our sin, and then as God brings the judgment against Cain, and he says that he's going to curse him and alienate him from the ground, the very thing that he worked and did for his livelihood, because his brother's blood cries out from the ground, accusing him, condemning him, and now he's going to be a wonder from the earth. And do you know what Cain does in that moment? In that moment, Cain goes, God, I see my sin. I see the significance of what I've done, that I've sinned against you. I've disregarded the very brother you've given me who's made in your image. He doesn't do that, does he? What's Cain do? He complains about the consequences of his sin rather than being broken over the sin itself. A sure sign that you're not responding to sin in the way that God would desire 
is that you're more concerned about the consequences of either sin being found out or of the consequences that come when your sin is found out than you are over the sin itself and the offense against a holy and loving God and the offense against others that God has put around you. I wish we could unpack in depth of how to, how to fight sin and, um, and put sin to death. I have a coffee mug that has a quote from John Owen on it. My two favorite coffee mugs are um, <clears throat> Ask Me About My Dad Jokes. There's one that says that. Um, I like that one. Um, you, later after the sermon, you can ask me about some dad jokes. Um, <clears throat> and then my, my other one that I like has got the, this John Owen quote on it that says, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, this teaches us that we can either make ourselves a friend of sin or we can be a fighter of sin. And God tells Cain, sin wants you, fight it. Sin desires to master you. This means war. Don't cozy up. Don't get comfortable. If the Spirit of God is convicting you of sin, either today or some sin in the past or sin that you haven't dealt with, know that it is a gracious and merciful thing that God would come to you just as he came to Cain and says, what you're playing with will destroy you. But you don't have to. Not because you're strong enough, but because I am. Come to me. That's God's invitation to us as he tells us the truth about the sin that desires to master us is that we can turn from it to him. Because in the end, we see that sin drives us from the presence of God, just as God is merciful to Cain and marks him. We don't know what the mark is that God gave Cain, but uh, it either was something that it wasn't in the sense of a shameful thing, but it was a merciful thing that, um, that God was either himself, he himself was marked with some physical thing, or that God just marks him as one whom he will protect and will uh, act in vengeance if anyone seeks to harm him. Uh, but he mercifully marks him and sends him away from the presence of God in the land east of Eden in a place called Nod, which is a play on the word wandering. No matter where Cain goes, he is always wandering. <clears throat> and we see that sin desires to master us. But before we get to the hope that we have, we continue on with the sad reality of living in a fallen world. <clears throat> We won't read through in depth here just for the sake of our time this morning, but as the line of Cain unfolds, starting in verse 17, um, <clears throat> we see that life in this fallen world is marked by great achievement, but often with no regard for God. If you go through the genealogy that unfolds here, a number of generations that's given, we see the success and the achievement of Cain's family is pretty significant. Cain is a builder of a city. Uh, his, one of his uh, descendants, Jabal, is a nomadic herdsman, perhaps crafting um, and developing the craft of a herdsman. The other, Jubal, is a musician who plays the lyre and the flute. And Tubal-Cain is an ironsmith who uh, is gifted in, in making tools and perhaps even weapons. Lamech's song at the end in verses 23 through 24 is called the Song of the Sword. Perhaps even Tubal-Cain makes weapons that give this type of pride and arrogance to Lamech who boasts of killing a man just as Cain and takes the blessing that God, the mercy that God shows Cain and marking him 
and takes it upon himself and says of Cain is to be avenged seven times over, verse 24, then Lamech, uh, Lamech will be 77 times over. It was R. Kent Hughes, a commentator, who says, Civilization can descend as it ascends. You think about that. Great achievement, but no regard for God means that a, a nation can rise even while it falls. A person can ascend in success even while they fall away from God. You can achieve great things in this life. And yet, what's the cost of your soul, Jesus said? What will you give for your soul in the end if you could gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? We see the defiance of God in Cain who was, who was uh, by God said to be a wanderer, but in essence, he, he makes a statement of defiance when he says, no, I'm going to set up shop right here and make a city for myself. Forget God. And the nations that follow, it's quite interesting to compare the line of Seth in chapter 5 with the line of Cain here in chapter 4. It's in chapter 5, verse 24, that we see Enoch who walked with God. But if you read through the line of Cain, there's, there's no reference to God. It's only in the line of Seth uh, and what follows at the end that we see people calling upon the name of the Lord. What a reminder that when one generation defies God, it's not long before the following generation forgets God. It's a word for parents. Give your kids a purpose. Give them a Bible. Tell them of the gospel because the gospel goes from one generation to the next when we're faithful to tell uh, the story of God's redemption. And then we see that presumption that I mentioned about Lamech who takes two wives for himself, presumes against God's design for marriage. He presumes against God's design for humanity made in his image when he boasts of killing another man. Without regard, Lamech is, is, if you could, uh, the poorest reflection of manhood. He has no honor for women as he boasts before his, his wives. He has no care for his fellow man, no humility before God, no justice, only vengeance, and he demands respect without taking responsibility. Don't be like Lamech, men. But the point isn't about manhood here. The point is actually about humanity in a fallen world. Capable of great things, but here's, here's the important part. Accountable before an even greater and holy God. And, and I, if I could press this point, I think as I think about our own lives in a fallen world, as we think about the struggle of, of living in this life, that sometimes we're willing to sacrifice time with God and faithfulness to God on the altar of success and achievement, whether it be in our work or whether it be in our school. And, and I, I think this is true as well, that we have young parents here, but as our parents grow up, we can be tempted to do this for the sake of our kids, trying to prioritize their success and their achievement in different ways, thinking that we can kind of put off either time with the Lord or time in fellowship with other believers in the church. My encouragement to us is let's ground ourselves in God. Ground ourselves in His Word and in His church. Otherwise, we'll be eaten alive in our attempt for success and achievement, no matter what form it takes. If we aren't grounded in God, we will be eaten alive by that pursuit. And if we're not eaten alive, we'll be swallowed up by despair because of the disappointments and the unmet expectations along the way. God is graciously reminding us that life in a fallen world, there's some great things that can be done. 
but don't disregard God on the path to achievement and success. He warns us of it, and that contrast comes out in verses 25 through 26 because it says Adam was intimate with his wife again and gave birth to another son and named him Seth. He says, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. And then a son was born to Seth also, and his name was Enosh. And then we have this conclusion. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, the, the one hope we have in a fallen world is that when sin is crouching at the door, our hope is that we can call on the name of the Lord. We live in a world where sin desires to master us, but we have an even greater one that we can call upon to be our master and to tame the sin that desires to master us. You see, you can't help but, but notice perhaps this indication of the, the hope of the promised offspring back in Genesis 3.15 when God said to Eve that your son, your offspring will uh, raise up and crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will uh, bruise the heel of your offspring. We, we have that, this sense of now that Abel has been taken and Cain has been cursed that, that Eve perhaps in the back of her mind says, God has given me another child. Perhaps this is the child. This is the first narrowing of the, the offspring that, that's to come. It's going to come through the line of Seth. And in a, a few chapters, we're going to see that it comes through Noah. And, and then it's going to continue. And we're going to see how it comes to Abraham and, and, and how God is working out his plan of redemption, even in the midst of sin. What good news that is that gives us a hope and an anchor when life seems like a mess, when nothing is going the way that it's supposed to go. When it's uncertain, when it's chaotic, when it's hard, there is a God who is at work. There is a God who is on his throne working out his plan for our good and for his glory. And then we have the hope of calling on the name of the Lord. No matter where we're at, no matter if we've sinned as great as Cain or somewhere else along the spectrum of how we measure our sin, which has no significance to God. All of our sin is an offense to a holy God. And no matter what grave we've found ourselves in or how deep we are in our sin, God says that anyone who calls on his name, he will save. Simple as that. We looked at it last week in Acts 16. When, when the jailer came to Paul and Silas and, and his life was undone by what had just happened with the earthquake and Paul sparing his life so he didn't kill himself, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's simple sermon was call on the name of the Lord. Believe in Jesus Christ. You see, the, the truth of Genesis 4 is that we are all Cain. You may feel like the younger sibling in your life sometimes and your big brother or big sister is Cain and you have that rivalry going. But I assure you that all of us are Cain. All of us have disregarded God in one time or another. All of us have, have chosen our own way. We may not have slain our brother or sister with a knife, but what about our words? We may not have taken two wives for ourselves like Lamech, but what about the thoughts in our mind and the, the images on our screens? We may not see ourselves as Cain, but that would only be pride speaking, the very thing that we see in him. Have we not all lived as if God's word didn't matter? 
Have we not all lived as if um, uh, we know better than God? As, uh, have we not presumed against his grace and his mercy and the patience that God has shown us? Have we not hardened our own hearts and continued to go our own way? Have, have we offered God the rest rather than the best? Have, have we lived by confidence in ourselves rather than faith in God? Maybe we've lived to please others rather than please God. I don't mean to step on your toes. I'm just trying to tell us that we're Cain. You're Cain. I'm Cain. But the good news of the gospel is that though we are Cain and though Abel's blood cries out from the ground, there's a better word. Hebrews 12 verse 24 tells us, as it speaks of coming to God, it says in Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And we've come to Jesus and to the sprinkled blood of Jesus, here it is, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus, Hebrews 12, 24, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's blood cried out from the ground, guilty. Jesus' blood cries out from the cross, forgiven. Abel's blood is a cry of accusation. Jesus' blood is a cry of restoration. The blood of Abel that, that condemned Cain also condemns us, but the blood of Jesus cries out redemption. Redeemed not by our work, but by the perfect work of Christ. And the blood of Abel cries out judgment, whereas the blood of Jesus cries out grace upon grace upon grace. That's the good news of the gospel today. That we live in a sinful and fallen world, but there is hope for those who call on the name of the Lord because the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. It speaks a word of forgiveness. It speaks a word of restoration and redemption and grace that says no matter how bad our sin, no matter how dark our sin, that there is forgiveness to be found in Jesus. And as we grow in Christ, listen, if you don't know Christ, the entrance to come, the the invitation to come is to call upon his name. Believers, as we grow in Christ, the invitation wakes us up every day with the mercy that meets us new every morning and says, today, if you live in your own strength, you'll walk in the way of Cain. But if you'll come to me and believe and trust in me and renew your, your faith in me and remind yourself of what I've done for you, you'll walk in the way of Abel, seeking to please me. You'll walk in the way of Jesus, who speaks a better word over us. Jesus's word not only speaks a better word, but it gives a better invitation. It says, come and call on the name of the Lord. So my question for you is simple. Will you call on the name of the Lord? If you don't know him today, there's nothing better. He invites you to lay your sin down, to confess it, and to receive the forgiveness that only he could provide. Though we are sinners, he was sinless. Though we are unrighteous, he was righteous. He did what we could not do. He paid the price we could not pay by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. And as simple as I know how to say today is in your own words, tell him you you agree with him. You agree on your sin and you receive what he's done.
And then believers today, it can be weary living in a fallen world. And I want, you to, I want you to be stirred up with hope because of what Christ has done for us. Let's not grow weary in following him. Let's not grow weary in doing good. There's a better word, a better sacrifice that meets us along the way every day. That helps us to be who he's called us to be, to be faithful right where we are. That he wants to use us in a sinful world to know him and to make him known. Let's pray as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper.